Welcome to Global Impact. I'm your host, Michael Basuku. Well, that musical kind of interlude you just heard was from the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Research Center. Uh, it's a video called Data in Motion. And what it does, it presents um, real-time uh, kind of st statistics on the situation of, of the pandemic today on September 10th. And uh, it's a very, very grim picture as the world approaches around 28 million cases and almost 1 million deaths. Uh, the United States uh, remains the world hotspot with um, an increase of over 34,000 cases. And um, there are uh, five US states right now, which had daily increases over the past 24 hours of more than 1500 cases each. But it's really India that is uh, generating a lot of headlines. There are um, almost 100 thousand new cases uh, overnight, uh, followed by Brazil with uh, over 35,000 new cases, Colombia over 15,000 new cases, and Argentina, Argentina around 12,000 uh, new cases. So a very uh, grim picture. We are going to get into um, the thick of things with a very special guest who I will introduce in a moment. Dr. Saira Madad, uh, welcome to Global Impact. Uh, we're absolutely, absolutely thrilled to have you and thank you for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule. Thank you for having me. I wanted just to read a couple of lines uh, from your very, very impressive bio on who you are. So, uh, clearly a national, nationally recognized leader and epidemiologist in public health and special pathogens preparedness response. Um, featured in Fortune's 40 Under 40 of Most Influential uh, in Healthcare, and you're a Senior Director of System-Wide Special Pathogens Program at New York City Health and Hospitals, which, by the way, is the nation's largest municipal healthcare delivery system. Uh, you're also a Principal Investigator of NYC Health and Hospitals Institute for Diseases and Disaster Management, a Fellow at Harvard University's Belfort Center for Science and International Affairs, and an adjunct senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists and part of their COVID-19 expert task force. That's a very impressive bio for someone who is only a few small decades old. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, so let's start from, you know, the work that you're doing and what you just went through. Uh, you know, um, nothing we say on this side of the line can ever be enough, I think, to compliment you and your colleagues for, for what you've just gone through and what you've just done for society. But I wanted to ask you, what was it like for you, the depth of the crisis? Your ERs were full. We saw a video of emergency treatment tents being set up in Central Park, the very sad um, images of 
queues of refrigeration trucks taking for taking bodies away. There were concerns about the lack of PPE, and on top of all of that, the eerily quiet uh, streets and lockdowns. So maybe you could tell us what it was like for you personally to have lived through all of that. Yeah, I think for for me to, as you mentioned, to live through it and experience it, you know, it was like a, a doomsday scenario, something that was right out of a horror movie. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I speak to a lot of my colleagues uh, and, you know, frontline healthcare workers, it, it was just, you know, um, a horrendous time. Um, and we couldn't see the light as, at the end of the tunnel. It just kept going on and on and on. And I remember just having conversations with colleagues just saying, is this going to end, you know, uh, and how is it going to end? Uh, it was very, it was a very difficult time for, for many of us. We both care, we all characterize it as both a marathon and a sprint at the same time. And it's not over yet. You know, while New York State was, has been the poster child, you know, the epicenter of the nation with highest number of cases at that time, highest number of deaths being reported um, due to COVID-19. Now we are the poster child of what it should look like in terms of containing COVID-19 and our contact tracing workforce across New York State. So, uh, you know, a completely uh, 360 there, but, you know, it's because of the hard work of all New Yorkers um, and really speaking with one voice and having one big public health agency. So while you have hospitals and local health departments and, you know, city agencies, it was one big agency almost coming together to make sure that we were able to tackle this global problem. Mm -hmm. And given everything you've you've gone through, and um, you know the stress and everything, and the dedication, um, of course, the breaking news today was uh, out of Bob Woodward's new book, uh, and you know uh, his conversations with the president. And it turns out that the president deliberately misled the public on the series of, of COVID nineteen, and um, you know makes one wonder of all the time that was wasted that could have been used to uh, better prepare ourselves and even the lives lost. But what was your reaction today when you heard that? That is the big breaking news from today after all. Unfortunately, I wasn't surprised, but I was extremely sad to hear the news uh, of the reality. Uh, and I think just knowing that the United States was behind in every crucial moment in this pandemic and that cost lives it caused people to get infected is just a terrible feeling not just you know both at the individual level but also mm -hmm. for the community for the nation and, and for the world mm -hmm. and that kind of uh, brings me to another topic back to the topic of ppe um a previous uh, doctor interviewed on this uh, program dr anastasia vasilieva from russia talked about how bad horribly bad the situation was in russia with lack of ppe now, when we look at the United States, the wealthiest nation on earth, how could that situation have happened here where there weren't enough masks and gowns and other protective equipment? Yeah, I think, you know, it was not surprising just because of the sheer volume of the number of patients coming in and just looking at just how supply chain operates around the world. So if you look at any given hospital, you order enough supplies for, an, you know, a certain period of time. You're not going to order, you know, a year's worth or two years worth, because one of the things people may not realize is items expire. Um, and so if you're going to invest money into something, you obviously want to make sure you're going to use it. Mm -hmm. And this is certainly a, an extremely one-off event where you couldn't predict how much 
N95s or how many isolation gowns that you would need. You know, some of these healthcare systems in New York City were burning at 600% uh, their, their baseline um, wow. just because everybody coming in, you just had to treat them as a COVID-19 patient because there was so much virus in the community. Um, mm -hmm. You couldn't differentiate between somebody coming in with a broken foot and somebody in coming, coming, uh, coming in with COVID-19 because even that person coming with a broken foot, once you were doing a full workup, you found out that this person was actually you know, COVID positive. So mm -hmm. basically you were treating every single person walking in as a COVID-19 patient. So there was a huge burn rate. We know that the global supply chain uh, really fell apart very early on. So a mm -hmm. lot of healthcare systems started to place orders of PPE back in January and orders were not being able, uh, they weren't able to fill it. These manufacturers were not able to fill it. They put you know, a lot of um, systems on allocation because of just the high volume uh, mm -hmm. of orders coming in. Um, but I think one of the things that really worked really well for New York State was uh, these wartime factories. And so you've had these factories that were repurposed to now put together eye protection like face shield or mm -hmm. put together isolation gowns. And so you were now relying at the at these companies that were at the local level and, and you know, providing these resources, which was great. And that's, that's really how a lot of these states, and particularly for New York State, how we were able to overcome a lot of that, that uh, PPE crisis. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, of course, we all know about the problems with testing early on that the CDC's tests weren't working that well at yeah. the beginning. Um, today, the White House reiterated that the U.S. is doing more testing than any other nation on earth. But didn't it, number one, start too late? And secondly, is it really prioritizing the right kind of folks in terms of testing and are results taking too long? So, you know, it's, it's a couple of things. So first, mm. certainly one of the, the greatest sins, if you will, uh, in this COVID-19 pandemic was the first, uh, the testing fiasco that happened very early on. And it made us blind to what was actually happening in the United States. There was a lot of community transmission happening and we just weren't aware of it uh, because of the lack of testing. Um, and then on top of that, you know, what we're experiencing even now is we don't have enough testing. And while we may be testing uh, a lot of people, you're seeing, you know, hundreds of thousands of tests being performed, it's still not enough. And the reason for that is because you're testing to find uh, cases and you're also testing to see how much virus is in the community. So the more community transmission, the more the virus is within the community, the higher the testing needs to be. And we are nowhere near that. So we have a lot of COVID-19 still, you know, lingering around within our community and our testing unfortunately just has not caught up. There's a lot of different platforms out there to do mm -hmm. testing. You know, there's point of care, there's testing you can send out to the lab. And as you mentioned, you know, there is very long uh, turnaround times, which really makes these tests useless because what one thing we know about COVID-19 is that speed and skill are so important. Mm -hmm. And if you get that test back two weeks after you initially go and, 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 and uh, go for the test and conduct the test, it's too late because this virus, you know, it's the most infectious early on. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, it's testing the right people at the right time with the right test, right? So there's PCR tests, there's antigen tests, you know, and you, you're playing detective a lot of times, and then you want to do contact tracing and things like that. So it, it all has to happen in a certain period of time, and that period of time has to happen real fast. Mm -hmm. And I believe there was new guidance out of Washington and Atlanta that um, asymptomatic contact, contact should not be tested, even if they've been exposed to the virus. Does that make any sense? 
It makes absolutely no sense from a scientific standpoint. It doesn't mm -hmm. make sense from a public health standpoint and even from an evidence-based standpoint, because with COVID-19, we know that uh, a large portion, you know, up to 40% or more, uh, you have individuals that are asymptomatic that are still able to transmit the virus to others and spread it and propagate the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to be able to test contacts and those that have been exposed. And I think, you know, the, this guidance that came out from CDC is more, you know, a, a political stance. And, you know, one of the questions I often get is, well, why do you think that is? Well, I think there's a couple of things. First, you know, uh, according to President Trump, you know, testing uh, translates into more cases. So it's, you know, the less you're testing, the more cases you're going to find. And then yep. on top of that, because of the backlog of cases, perhaps it's trying to conserve uh, the, the testing for those that, that um, need it the most that are at higher risk. And so, you know, it's very unfortunate. But the thing is, the CDC guidance is just that. It's guidance. And states mm -hmm. don't have to uh, actually follow that guidance. And there's no regulatory requirement. And you are actually seeing states like New York State that has decided to not follow that guidance. And they're going to go ahead and test everybody, uh, including contacts and those that may be asymptomatic. Okay. And one more question on testing, if I can. Um, you'd be, you might be surprised to <laughs> hear how many people I've spoken to who think they might have had the virus. Uh, these are mostly younger folks and very mild. And I've been asked a lot, should they go out to be tested to see if they have antibodies and should provinces and state, uh, you know, kind of facilitate that, that type of testing? Well, you know, it's important to understand, well, you know, what are you going to get out of COVID-19 antibody testing? Is it going to change anything? Is it going to change mm -hmm. your behavior? Is it going to change the way you interact? Are you not going to wear a mask? And the answer is no. So even if, for example, you go ahead and get a COVID-19 antibody test and it comes out positive, meaning that, you know, you have antibodies, mm -hmm. you were infected before, that doesn't mean that you're not going to take the everyday preventative measures. You're still going to watch your distance. You're still going to wear a mask. You're still you're not going to you know, try to uh, participate in congregate settings, things like that. So it's not changing your behavior in any way. What the purpose of the serology testing is really more so for research purposes and just to see how much virus has been in a given community. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that you know, ultimately we're trying to achieve at the end of the day is herd immunity through either natural means or through inoculation. And obviously, the path we know is quite clear uh, is, you know, you want to do it through inoculation or through vaccination, because if you're going to do it the natural means, then you're going to have a lot of death and a lot of cases to get to that herd immunity, mm -hmm. whether that's 70 percent or 80 percent. You're listening to Global Impact, and uh, you're now tuned into a conversation with Dr. Saira Madad, who is a nationally recognized, recognized leader and epidemiologist in public health and special pathogens preparedness and response in New York City. And also, by the way, she was featured in the Netflix series Pandemic and participated in the Ebola response in the United States. During the conversation, I wanted to ask um, Dr. Madad about reports uh, that we've been receiving about people being reinfected with COVID-19. That is, they've had the uh, COVID-19 uh, virus, uh, they recovered, and then sometime later, they were reinfected. Of course, this is a huge concern. And uh, as well, we're hearing about uh, whether once infected, whether um, the human being uh, develops antibodies, that is the kind of uh, protection that can prevent them from getting COVID-19 again. But before we do that, I wanted to play a clip uh, from the recent uh, WHO um, briefing on Monday, where uh, a fellow journalist asked um, 
the WHO technical lead for COVID-19, Dr. Maria Van Kerkhove, about this situation, uh, about reports of folks getting uh, reinfected with COVID-19, and also about the antibody issue, is whether it can protect you from uh, getting COVID-19 a second time. And then we'll go straight into uh, Dr. Madad's answer. Um, when somebody is exposed and somebody is infected with this virus, their body develops an immune response, an antibody response, which develops a week or two, sometimes a little bit longer after that infection. And that antibody response um, provides some protection to that individual, and it protects them against reinfection. What we're learning about right now, and there are many studies that are underway, really excellent studies that are following individuals over time, looking at how long that antibody response lasts. First of all, how strong that antibody response is, depending on the type of disease you experience, whether you have uh, asymptomatic infection, whether you have mild disease, or all the way through severe disease. And we are seeing that people, even with asymptomatic infection, still develop an immune response. What we need to better understand how, is how strong that is and for how long it lasts. Um, there are a number of studies that are underway that are following individuals, the same individual over time. Um, and there are some very promising results from these studies that are showing that the antibody response lasts, it stays strong for a certain number of months. We're only eight months into this pandemic, and so we haven't followed uh, individuals for many, many, many months. Um, so we don't know how long that, that uh, robust immune response lasts. We do have some case reports of individuals um, who have appeared to be infected a second time. Um, there are a couple of case reports that we are aware of, uh, ones that are, have been confirmed by full genome sequencing, which essentially they had a sequence at the first time the person was infected, and then they did a sequence again at the second infection, or presumed second infection. They've compared those two sequences, and they see enough of a difference to say this is a new infection. Um, there's an example from Hong Kong, um, and there's an example I've seen in a preprint from the U.S., and there are a few other examples, a handful of other examples, a small number from a couple of additional countries. Um, in those individuals, what we are looking for is what type of an immune response did they have on their first infection, if that was even measured, and then at the time of the second infection, did they have measurable antibodies? And I think that's really important for us to really understand, to see if that immune response lasts. Because in some individuals, an immune response may decline. But again, we do need to put this into context. You know, out of, out of more than 26 million cases, having some case reports of reinfection tells us that this is possible, but it doesn't tell us what's happening at a population level. We have examples of it, and so we're following this over time, and we're working with labs um, to determine looking at that full genome sequence to see if there's a second infection. Um, so we do know that it's impossible, but there are only a few case reports that have been reported to date. That is what CDC has mentioned in terms of how long immunity can last mm -hmm. for, and they're saying, you know, uh, three months or longer. But what we know about COVID-19 is there's so much variability. So this, this is just a high-level estimate. Some people may have immunity for a longer period of time, some may have it for a shorter period of time, and some may not have it, you know, um, at all. Um, and this is where we're still learning so much more about this virus. And if you compare it to some of this cousin or sister viruses like MERS and SARS, yeah. you know, for SARS, for example, you have immunity for, you know, up to 24 months uh, with COVID-19, right? This is something that, that's still being um, explored, but there's so many variations and there's really orders of magnitude when we talk about the differences 
in, for example, the attack rate um, and the individuals that are more susceptible um, and those that are, can have a, um, a worse outcome requiring hospitalization. There's just so many differences. You can have Bill that's completely healthy, has no underlying health conditions. Mm -hmm. and then you have, you know, um, John, same thing, same age, same health condition, same health status, but he has a worse outcome. And it's hard to figure out what is causing it because again, there's just so many differences. And we call those, for example, the um, the heterogeneity, for example, of, of uh, the way that this virus can can act, and there's so many differences, and sometimes it can really even come down to uh, as simple as a more nose hair, right, or mm. who talks the loudest or most uh, explosively, uh, and these can influence susceptibility uh, and transmission of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Okay, and um, as our uh, famous uh, Chief Public Health Officer here in British Columbia reminded us today, Dr. Bonnie Hendry, that we're entering the flu season, or soon will be, uh, here in the Northern Hemisphere. She said something very interesting, doctor. She said that uh, they've been studying what's been happening in the Southern Hemisphere and that some of the um, protocols that people have taken to because of COVID-19 have actually reduced the spread of influenza. Now, we've been hearing ap apocalyptic <laughs> scenarios for this coming fall. What's your take on this? Uh, what are we looking at in terms of the flu season? Why is it such concern? Well, it's, it's a huge concern because, you know, it's, it's a double whammy in terms of this another respiratory virus on top of the current one that we're dealing with. And it's going to be competing for the same resources. So it's going to be competing mm -hmm. for the same supplies uh, from a hospital standpoint. Um, and it's also, you know, going to be competing for uh, ICU beds and, and staffing and space and things like that. But as you've mentioned, and, and you know, I've been keenly monitoring what's been happening in the Southern Hemisphere. And certainly what we know about respiratory virus is, is that, you know, these everyday measures that we're using for COVID-19 have a direct effect on seasonal flu. So we may see, you know, a mild flu season, but this is something yet to be seen because the United States is such a huge country and there's so mm -hmm. much variability. You have some states that are mandating that in masking, other states are not, some are complying better than others. So this can play out very differently here in the United States. And so it's the best to prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. Well said. And of course, um, a big, big part of bringing us to the end of this uh, horrible pandemic is a vaccine. Yeah. Uh, a CNN poll published uh, a few weeks ago found that there's a stunning figure, 40% of Americans would not take the coronavirus vaccine. Does that concern you? It certainly does. And it's not surprising because we know that vaccine hesitancy is one of the top 10 global health threats uh, in the world. And what makes this even worse is the politicalization of the vaccine of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so when you hear of federal authorities saying we want to, you know, rush and, and accelerate the timeline of when this vaccine is available, that's going to make people even more reluctant. And this is why it's so important to make sure that we, we put science first and we follow the scientific process and the method that we've had for centuries. And, uh, and, and, and it works. And, and so we want to make sure that confidence uh, in the public health community, because this is not just about the COVID-19 vaccine. This mm. is going to have a direct effect on all the other immunizations that we provide from measles to rubella. So it's really important we get this right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I'm dying to ask you this because you are in New York City after all, but just today the White House boasted about how President Trump quickly closed down arrivals from China. But yet, according to the information I looked at, many of the cases where you are were seated by arrivals from New York, uh, sorry, from Europe, people coming to New York City 
with the virus and passing it on. Um, so in that regard, should action have been taken quicker, especially with uh, closing down uh, arrivals from Europe? You know, we all live in, we all live in, in areas where it's, it's porous borders and doing these types of lockdowns and restricting traveling from one area to another in these types of situations, really, it takes away from the actual uh, task that we should be focusing mm -hmm. in on. And so, and, and as we've seen here and play out in the United States, you know, the lockdown really did nothing. Um, it was more of a waste of time and it took away from us actually doing other mitigation measures, like, you know, looking more into how we can stand up testing and contact tracing. Um, and so, as you mentioned, the first cases were seeded from Europe, but that's not surprising because mm -hmm. we live in such a globalized world. Just because an outbreak started in China doesn't mean that it didn't spread other in other areas. And then those particular countries brought it here to the United States. And that shows you that lockdown, you know, those types of travel restrictions don't work unless you're able to get the virus under control early on mm -hmm. and then see where, where it's coming from. And that's extremely difficult. And indeed, I remember the WHO saying very early on that they were not supportive of, a tra of trade and travel restrictions yeah. because they don't work. Yeah. yeah. Um, now a question, I hope you don't mind me repeating it, which you kindly answered for me in my just published uh, CNN opinion piece that people can go and read. But um, we talked about uh, the last time we spoke uh, was about how Canada has managed to crush the curve far better than the United States. And uh, by the way, just here in British Columbia, we went back into restrictions from earlier in the pandemic. For example, gatherings are limited to six. Nightclubs have been closed again, as well as standalone banquet halls and a number of other measures as well. So um, what is it, do you think, that Canada did so differently that managed to, helped us to get it under control as opposed to the United States? Well, you know, I think one of the biggest things that wasn't worked very well in Canada is that they followed science, they followed the consensus of the medical community, and they didn't politicize uh, major aspects of the response. And so one of the, the biggest things that we see in any type of epidemic is if you have the trust of the community, they will listen to you. So if, they, if you ask them to wear a mask and you give them a reason to do it, they'll go ahead and they'll comply. Um, and in Canada, you know, it was such a, a great way in terms of the risk communication that was happening there. It was transparent. It was telling you what they knew, what they didn't know. Um, and that really helped uh, in the overall response in Canada and, and other countries really that had a, a much more successful outcome than here in the United States, where you had multiple voices speaking, mixed messages, uh, not following science, not following data, and not mimicking uh, good behavior like wearing a mask. You know, you didn't, you'd see Trump wearing a mask sometimes and not wearing mm -hmm. it, and then uh, making fun of those that were wearing it. It yep. was just, it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, and I'll try to put into the podcast, uh, into this segment, some clips from today. Uh, I was listening to our uh, public health officers from across the country, and it sounded like almost the headmaster of a school talking to students. Uh, and for example, Bonnie Henry again said today, you know, time to stop partying. It's time to go back to school, time to go back to work. So let's cool it a bit. So it's very interesting to hear them talk. Um, speaking of which, uh, and I know you were interviewed on CNN about this, but uh, our chief uh, medical officer here in Canada, uh, Dr. Theresa Tam, spoke about the dangers of having sex during the pandemic, saying sex can be complicated during COVID-19 and that the lowest risk sexual activity during COVID-19 involves yourself alone. What does the research tell us so far and what would your advice be to people? So sexual transmission of COVID-19 is something that's still, you know, we're learning a lot more about, but we know that, you know, 
when we talk about the transmission of COVID-19, it's primarily spread by direct contact through, you know, uh, respiratory fluids. And so when you are engaging in these types of activities where you're in very close contact, you know, with an individual, that it can help obviously spread COVID-19 along with, you know, acts like kissing, where you have particles in the saliva, where you can transmit COVID-19. And that's where it's important to provide information and education to people of mm -hmm. how to do it safely. So it's not an abstinence-only approach, which never works. If you tell somebody not to do it, you know, more likely than not, they're going to try to do it. And so mm -hmm. it's good to provide them the tools and the resources of how to do it safely. And really, the entire goal is, you know, uh, is harm reduction and how can you minimize your risk of getting COVID-19. Um, and so if you're able to provide them with these mitigation measures, like wearing a mask and abstaining from certain acts, um, then, you know, that is obviously much more preferred than to mm -hmm. not talk about it because it's a taboo top topic. Okay. And I, uh, I know a lot of listeners on Global Impact are interested in the topic of travel, especially flying. And, um, you know, we get so many questions about it. And I remember Dr. Mike Ryan of WHO saying, if it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. But what's your take on flying? Is it safe, especially when and many airlines are packing their planes and even filling that middle seat, with the exception of Alaska Airlines, by the way, but would you fly? Would you think it's safe to fly? I personally would not fly. Um, mm. You know, is this, these are just certain things that we know. What we know about COVID nineteen are kind of you know the 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 big three C's like you know confined spaces, congregate settings, close contact, things like that. And when these when these three C's overlap, you have a mm -hmm. higher risk of spread. And these and these are you know great areas for the spread of COVID nineteen. And so if I absolutely do not have to get on a plane, um, I'm not going to. This is just not the time to do so. And we know that people want to go back to their normal life. You have pandemic or caution fatigue, but you know, everybody's feeling it, but this is greater than, you know, enjoyment. Um, this is really about health and safety. Mm -hmm. And we know this is going to be over soon. We don't know how soon, but it'll be over soon. And everybody needs to make sure that we're all coming together to protect one another because my actions affect you and your actions affect me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I wanted to start winding up, but before I do, with your permission, I had a couple of listener questions. Sure. Uh, one is directed at you, uh, Dr. Sue Varma, who is an alumni guest of Global Impact, New York City board registered physician, psychiatrist, and a network TV commentator on mental health. She said, I'd love to hear what Dr. Hamad is doing for her own mental health, what has been helpful, or what kind of problems are you seeing and think needs more attention? Certainly, I think mental health is so crucial because we know so many people are experiencing, you know, stress and, uh, you know, psychological issues and just general just mental health issues. And so for me, particularly, I, mean, I love to decompress by cooking or gardening or just being around with my kids. I haven't taken uh, a day off you know, I feel like it's been months and months. Mm -hmm. I actually delivered my third child in uh, early, uh, mid, mid January. And wow. it was just, it's been, it's been nonstop. So she's almost eight months now. Um, and I went right back to work basically two weeks after I delivered her because I knew following the, the stories that we would have uh, a significant impact here in New York City. And I wanted to make sure that our healthcare system was prepared. Mm -hmm. I certainly did not imagine the onslaught of cases that were going to come in the, in the weeks ahead. 
Um, but you know, for, for me, I am looking to take some time off because you know I'm not going to be of any use to anyone if I if I can't uh, contribute and, and operate to to, to my, the best of my ability. And so I think it's it's important for people to to relax and take some time off and mm -hmm. you know R and R and and do it locally uh, and safely. Okay, and um, this is a really really fascinating one. It comes to us uh, via. Tamara in Cape Town, South Africa. So she pointed me to a BBC story that uh, said that infection and death rates in many African countries have turned out to be much lower than initially feared. And today, South Africa is emerging from its first wave of infections with the COVID death rate roughly seven times lower than Britain's. And as the number of infections dip sharply in South Africa, experts there are ex exploring the following hypothesis that if crowded conditions could prove to give people in South Africa um, some extra protection against COVID-19. In other words, they're looking at this question, you know, the crowded townships and everything. Could there be factors there beyond a youthful population that um, protects people from um, acquiring the, the, the virus? Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things that we know about mm -hmm. COVID-19. So first, we know age is a huge factor. So, you know, the, the higher the age, the higher the risk of having a severe outcome from COVID-19. And so if you compare Italy to, for example, the United States, you know, for you know, in Italy, you had a, a higher um, population uh, that uh, in terms of age. And so you had a worse outcome, um, both in terms of the number of death and then number of critical cases. But age is just, you know, one factor. The other factors is underlying health conditions. And so here in the United States, a very large portion of Americans uh, have underlying health conditions that mm -hmm. put you at higher risk for uh, severe outcome from COVID-19, something, uh, you know, as, for example, ob obesity, diabetes, hypertension. So I think in certain parts of, of the, you know, the world, and particularly in, in Africa, for example, you have, you know, the population is, is younger, you have less underlying health conditions. And then on top of that, you know, there are other things that help uh, influence um, mm -hmm. the susceptibility and just overall the number of cases that you're seeing. And this includes, for example, when we look at in-hospital death, you ha we have better treatment options now, right? So we have blood thinners, we know work really well, steroids, mm. things like that. But then on top of that, what you're also seeing is, you know, some people may already have pre-existing immunity. So there is some speculation that those that have had, you know, um, coronavirus, like the common cold, mm -hmm. it offers them some sort of, some, some, degree of protection. Another, you know, kind of speculation that's relatively new is um, the the dose amount that you may be um, exposed to. Mm -hmm. So if you're exposed to a lower dose of COVID-19, you may have uh, a less of a severe outcome. That has not been proven, but, you know, because of mask wearing um, early on and lockdowns and people being able to physically distance themselves, uh, that has also played a very large role in the overall number of cases and the number of deaths. And then, as I mentioned, that, that can also uh, contribute largely to um, the number of uh, the, the dose, uh, the infectious dose that individuals may be exposed to. So you mm -hmm. may be exposed to a lower dose. So if, for example, you're wearing a mask and the other person's not wearing a mask and while that mask will, may not protect you 100%, you may inhale a couple of particles and then you have um, you know, a, a lower infectious dose. What that translates into and what that means is still something that's being investigated, but that there is speculation that they, that may also play a role in the number of overall cases and death. Mm -hmm. Fascinating stuff. Um, and kind of to wrap up, uh, and I know it's difficult to look into the future, but what is your best prognosis for COVID-19 in the U.S.? Do you think 
we may see a second wave and can we expect a vaccine by the end of the year? I think we will see a vaccine by the end of the year, but I think the common misconception is, is it going to be used for widespread uh, inoculation or just for the general community? And that's not going to be the case. I think that's definitely going to be a 2021 event in terms of when it's going to be broadly available to the general public. The first few groups that are going to be getting the vaccine will be those that are higher risk, like healthcare workers, first responders, those you know with underlying health conditions. Um, and then the rest of the population will then eventually get it. But by the time I think that the vaccines do roll out for the general public, we are going to see additional cases. We are going to see additional death. Um, and that's unfortunately just going to be the nature of how this pandemic is going to play out. Um, I do think this is something that's going to be with us in perpetuity, just like we have seasonal flu every year. It's going to be just endemic, mm -hmm. uh, something that we're going to experience, um, but to hopefully to a lower um, impact or degree. Mm -hmm. Okay. And finally, this is possibly the most important question I ask you is, how can people best, uh, how can people uh, in their respective countries best help frontline health workers like yourself? What's the best advice you can give? I mean, my thinking is let's not get sick and let's not get COVID so as not to put demand on an already stressed health system. Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of things. So you've mentioned one, certainly try, you know, impl follow public health guidance, do the everyday preventative measures, wearing a mask, keeping a distance, not congregating uh, in large gatherings. So you are, you know, not taxing the, the healthcare system. But on top of that, it's also extremely important to stay informed. There's so much misinformation out there um, that people are, are believing um, that, and, and, and it's contributing not just to lives lost because they're putting themselves at higher risk. But, you know, they're also now turning against public health officials and the scientific and medical community because they're believing in a lot of this misinformation mm -hmm. and disinformation. And that really uh, also is, is a huge factor in this pandemic because in all my experiences, you're, I'm always finding two epidemics at the same time. I'm fighting the contagion itself and then I'm, mm -hmm. fighting, the, I'm fighting the contagion of misinformation. Sure. And the contagion of misinformation has been so, more, so much more prominent in this pandemic. So it's important to stay informed, but it's important to get your information from the right sources so you're able to make the right decisions for yourself, for your family, and for your community. And that's why I feel so blessed to have so many friends who are doctors, because <laughs> I get the right advice all the time. That's great. <laughs> Dr. Madad, we're so grateful uh, for your time. We wish you and your amazing team uh, luck, and we do hope you do get that time off to enjoy with yourself and your young family. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, this brings us to the end of yet another episode of Global Impact. And remember, there are several ways you can help support this podcast. And among them is um, clicking subscribe. Uh, on one of the uh, podcast platforms that you use. Uh, don't forget to give us uh, a like if you can. And of course, you always have the option of uh, supporting the program financially by going to the podcast uh, website page. Because after all, at the end of the day, this is a listener-supported podcast. Uh, as I always do, I like to remind everyone um, different parts of the world are going back into lockdown. Uh, they're parts, uh, many countries where people are going to be stuck back at home again, please do not forget about them. Reach out to them and 
remind them that somebody is thinking about them. Well, finally, finally, I'd like to leave you with a piece of beautiful music, which it just struck me as so appropriate for these times, these profound times, uh, these times of reflection. And uh, what I'm sharing with you is um, a piece called Viola Concerto Number no. 1. And uh, it's performed by a name you may be familiar with, those listeners of uh, Global Impact who've been with us for a while. Uh, but uh, it's performed by Elvira Mispachova. And uh, she's performing with the Drum and Real Symphony Orchestra and uh, along with Eirat Ikhmarutov. Now, they're both um, Volga, Tatar, Russian slash Canadians. Um, Eirat is a classic composer, conductor, and klezmir clarinist. And uh, Elvira is um, a violist and violinist. The group that I uh, played a few um, weeks ago uh, called Klestore. So here you go. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Turn up the volume, sit back and reflect on it. And we will see you again soon. Thank you very much for listening to Global Impact. I'm your host, Michael Basakew.